Welcome to the Goal In Podcast. My name is Robert Bruss and I'm your host and I'm proud to be bringing you this show from Sydney, Australia. Today on the show I'm joined by fellow Australian Army veteran Molly Gray. Excited Hello. to be here. G'day Molly. I'm super excited to be bringing you this episode which is number 64 and there's no announcements today so let's just dive straight into the show. Now when I created the Goal In podcast, one of the things that I wanted to do was to tell more Australian veteran stories. Now, there's plenty of podcasts out there that do that, but there's not many with an Australian flavor. So it's an incredible pleasure for me to be speaking with Molly today. Now, Molly is an 11-year veteran of the Australian Army, and she served one tour in Afghanistan. But there's so much more to this story than just a military thing that we got going on here. And as you'll see... Molly's not only a soldier, but she's a genuine fighter, and she embodies absolutely everything that it means to go all in. From war veteran to professional athlete and the transition to life after the military, there's some serious life lessons in here for everyone. Molly, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here, mate. Thanks for having me. I'd like cut you off a little bit before, and I was like, oh, not my part yet. But not quite. That <laughs> no, wasn't quite so- you. Now it's your turn. <laughs> How are you today? Yeah, no, that's all right. It's good to be here, though. It's really good. I'm excited to have this chat, actually. Awesome. Well, I'd like to start off with all of my guests with a quick little get-to-know-you quiz. It's a little bit of fun. It kind of warms us up. It warms up the grey matter a little bit for this workout that's ahead of us here. Pretty random. They're in no particular order. Just a couple of quick questions to get to know you a little bit, and maybe your friends and family listening at home will learn something that they don't already know about you. You ready? All right. I'm ready. Lay it on me. NRL or Rugby Union? Rugby union, obviously. Oh, man, that's just such a loaded question, right? <laughs> it's like, I'm a rugby player, so <laughs> hard out, rugby union. <laughs> you ever play a game of NRL? I have, actually. I played my very first game in 2016. My mum came to watch me, and she turns around, and I'd already been playing, been playing rugby union for the Aussie side for like two years by this point. And she turns around and she goes, I actually wholeheartedly believe that you are a better NRL player than you are a uh, union player. So... Yeah, I don't know. I do enjoy it, though. I do enjoy it. But I think I'm just rugby through and through because it's been so long. What, what, what position do you prefer in rugby, forwards or backs? Forwards, all day. Although, loose forward, though. So I have that you know, leniency to go backwards and forwards if I want to. It doesn't really matter. So it's good. I hate the second row. Get me into the tight five, and I hate it. There's too many restrictions. But, yeah, I like having that freedom to run around the field and sort of do whatever I want. I was going to say, it's probably a breakaway or a lock position, right? That's much better for you. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> nice one, nice one. Tell me, have you ever played a game of AFL? No, I haven't, but I commentated AFL for the first time last year. Also sort of watched it for the first time whilst I was commentating as well, <laughs> <laughs> which is kind of tricky to do that when you're supposed to be the person who knows what you're talking about. But I really, I, what is it? Fake it till you make it. I completely faked it through that one. Um, never played, but it looks really cool. It's a different type of game, right? I grew up playing NRL as a, as a young Sydney sider here, and I played a little bit of rugby union as well. I preferred NRL for some reason. I mean, the games aren't really that different, I think, because that's where I started, and that's what I really enjoyed. But I never played a game of AFL, and when I got a little bit older and when I was in the army, all the boys there, they were mad for it, and I never really understood the game or anything like that, and they got me right into it. I was like, yeah, it's actually pretty fun. It's a pretty cool game too, right? Yeah, it's not bad. I wish that I've retired from contact sport now, but I wish that I had played it. If I could go back, I'd probably try and play a game. But then I also realized that 
there's a lot of running involved and I'm not exactly a long distance runner across any means. I, you probably won't get me running over about a kilometre. There's some fit guys in that game and girls, right? Yeah, I hear that they run about 25Ks a game or something. And while I was playing rugby, I don't think I ever got over five or six. So there's a big difference between the two. Big difference. Tell me, Molly, what was uh, what was your first car? My first car? It was one of those Mazda one-to-one bubbles. You know, those like teeny tiny ones? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My mum bought it for me for my 18th birthday. And she swore to me that she would never buy me a car. And I turned up home one day and she'd got this car for me. It was like $1,200. And about two months later, my stepbrother got in it. We lived on a property and the driveway was about 400 metres long. He was 15. He gets in the car, drives it down the driveway and on the way back loses control and runs it into a tree. And the tree is not big. Like it's about, I don't know, it's probably about as thick as your forearm type of tree. It was so tiny and he wrote the car off. He stacked it. He wrecked your first car, you broke. Yeah, which is not necessarily a bad thing, though, because if a teeny tiny tree can write off a Mazda one two one, then as a P-plater, you probably don't want to drive something like that. So was that was a good thing. Wasn't real safe. No, no. <laughs> However, I have driven Mazdas ever since. So. <laughs> well, my son's first car that we bought him recently was a, uh, was a 323. Uh, it was a pretty good car. Nice. <laughs> I, I think they've. I think Mazdas have grown up a long way since the uh, one two one that Sydney Siders or Aussies remember. I don't know if those cars are anywhere else in the world. I've never seen them anywhere else. I don't know. I, I see a couple going around every now and then, and it just takes me back, and I have a good laugh about it. I'm driving a CX seven at the moment, and everyone every every time I turn up somewhere, everyone's always like. Oh, like you and all your kids and your soccer mum car. Granted, I have no children, <laughs> but I really like the SUV style people mover. I just love it. It's great. That is a soccer mum car. That is absolutely true. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me, Molly, if you yeah. could play out any movie character in real life, who would you be and why? Oh, that's a tough one. Come on, what comes um, to mind? What's the first thing that comes to mind? Wonder Woman. Oh. <laughs> The lasso of truth, is that what it would be? Yeah, well, she's like, doesn't Wonder Woman have that posse of big, strong women who are like all part of her tribe or whatever you want to call it? I like that. I think I would just go with that. Me and a tribe of women, I think it would be super fun and they're all super fit. So She was a badass, yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice. All right, uh, it's the typical podcasting question. I'll end a quick quiz on this one. Uh, if you had the opportunity to go back in time and spend 10 minutes with anybody in history, who would you visit and what would you say? Who would I visit? Oh, this is a tough one as well. I don't know. Come on, I have it's not no a, idea. It's not a trick question. Who comes to your no, mind? Who would you visit it's from history? Like, I know. I've, it's not that far back in history, and I'm pretty sure I've seen him around Sydney before, but I've always wanted to sit down and have a chat to Ian Thorpe. Ah. And obviously, lives not very far from me, I'm sure, because he's a mm. Sydney boy too. But I've always been so fascinated by him. I think he was just a killer athlete, someone who obviously peaked and hit the top of their career at a really early age. And then, you know, I've always wanted to know what it was like for somebody like him to hit that early and then peter off into the rest of like, you know, trying to live the rest of your life after you've already lived the biggest moments of your life. So he's definitely someone that I've always wanted to speak to. Yeah, he's an incredible athlete. I was always um, amazed at the level of maturity that he had as a young guy. And mm. it was as if the skills that he had were like, oh, yeah, that was just, you know, I used to get in the water and swim, you know. 
Yeah, well, you find like a lot of athletes. It's sort of like, oh, yeah, that's just what I do. You know, I sit up here as one of the best in the world, but it's just how I roll. It's just so crazy about it. So, yeah, he's always been a really interesting dude. Yeah, nice. He, he, um, I used to see him up at Sutherland Pool uh, when I lived up in that part of the world, and I would go and train. It was actually when I was in the Army. Um, I'd go and train up there all the time, and he'd be there. I'd be like, oh, there's, there's, there's Thorpey. That's kind of cool. I saw him in uh, a gym that I went to, I think it was last year, mm-hmm. and one of my friends was his trainer. And I walked in, and I was sitting down on the ground, and I looked over, and I was like, that looks like Thorpey. And then he turned around, and I was like, holy shit, that is Thorpey. <laughs> and I got really nervous. And I never get starstruck by anybody. Like, I'm around rugby players all the time, and I see Ian Thorpe, and I completely panicked. And I was like, no, I'm not going to go over and say hi. So I didn't. I just sat there in awe. And I should have. <laughs> I feel like such a pussy, but I totally should have. But so. He's Maybe just, another time. He's just one of those great Australians that was uh, created by the media. and the, He was famous and successful for his skill, but then that was just taken to the next level uh, at, by the media. And uh, you know, I don't know if there's anybody since that has been as successful or as, as big as that, has there? I don't know. I can't think of anyone that comes to mind. I don't think so either. I think the problem with the media now is that they build somebody up to be somebody super successful before they have hit the mark yet. Mm. I think because it's so accessible these days. Like, who was that guy, the swimmer, before the Olympics that they were doing that to? The recent Mag- Olympics, Magnus- mm. Magnuson, James Magnuson, or something. Mm. And then he didn't get um, he didn't get the gold medal. And it was sort of like, why did we build you up to be a god before you even were one? You know, it's like Thorpey. Thorpey was always amazing and got the credit that he deserved once he got there. But mm. these days, people sort of get it too soon. I think. And I think it's a little bit different these days with social media and whatnot. We have a different type of following and a different type of fan base than we once did from the Sydney Olympics way back when. That makes me feel old. <laughs> I think we all remember Sydney Olympics, yeah. The athletes are very different these days. Everyone's so much more accessible, obviously, with Instagram. So, yeah, no, it's a very different journey these days that you see for people. Mm-hmm. Well, Molly, thank you for sharing that with us. A little bit of fun to kick off the show there. Um, Will people come on over to the Go All In podcast to learn more about others that have gone all in? So if you could, mate, could you please share with us your biggest Go All In story or stories and the lessons that you've learned from your commitment to success? So 2017. So I've been playing rugby for the Wallaroos, for the Australian side from 2014. And... I had a shocking debut, absolutely shocking, like run out onto the field and I had about 20 minutes to go before the end of the game and mentally just overthought everything and I remember standing out there and I debuted against New Zealand and I had this big back running at me and I was a forward but she was bigger than I was and I remember being so scared and as soon as she like got right up near me and it was time to tackle, my first thought was how do you tackle? Like that's how intimidated I was by the entire situation and then after that, we played a few more games and I went home. And I was so disappointed, actually, with how I played that I had to just figure out what my new schedule was going to be because I was always, in my head, I was always like, I wanted to be one of the best players in the country, but that performance that I just had given over in New Zealand wasn't good enough. So I changed my trainer, I changed my diet, I changed all of my habits and everything And then after that, things started to move a little bit smoother for me. I went over to the World Cup a few months later. I actually got pulled in by the coaches at one point. And they said to me that they weren't going to pick me based off how badly I played while I was there. And that made total sense to me because I wouldn't pick me either. It was actually like that bad. I look back at that and I've seen the footage and it's so embarrassing that you could play for Australia but play so terribly. So that was sort of my first 
introduction to going all in, which is giving up all of the habits that I had before, completely changing and then throwing myself into sport. And then from there, it just sort of started to evolve. And when you talk about going all in, I think about that as becoming completely obsessed with something. And I was like that with rugby. And so it was like 2017 and I was gearing up for my second World Cup. And by that point, I'd worked my way up into a starting position in the side and was always training and always thinking about rugby and just doing anything and everything that I could that involved me getting bigger and better and faster and stronger. And I spent a lot of time in the gym as well. It was mm. ridiculous how many hours I spent in there. But you, you were all in. What was it? Yeah, 100%. I always was. I was just so obsessed with it. Mm. And in February that year, we were playing a game in Brizzy and I got hit by somebody from the side and I did my ACL, MCL, PCL, meniscus, dislocated my kneecap, sheared off all the cartilage and I tore my VMO in one quick hit. And it was... Which side, left or right? The most left side. So I'd already done my, I'd already done my right side at my oh. first World Cup and then I'd done this one a couple of years later. And this was like six months before we were due to get on the plane and go over to the World Cup in Ireland. And I knew exactly what it was because I'd already done my MCL before. And when I hit the ground and I felt the entire thing blow to pieces, I was just like, crap, I know that this is an ACL. Mm. I know that an ACL takes six months to recover. I know that I've got six months until the World Cup. And it was just the most awful feeling ever to feel like you had so much ahead of you and then you had nothing. Mm. So what I ended up doing was I spoke to my surgeon and he was just like, I'm going to give you a graph that allows you to come back a little bit quicker. So he used my hamstrings, but he chucked a synthetic graft in there as well. He goes, you can get back in five months of this, four and a half, maybe five. And after that, I don't think I've ever trained so hard in my life. I completely just like went tunnel vision and addicted to getting back in time. And then five months later, I got on a plane and I... What was it? What was it? Was it getting to the World Cup and going for that again? Or was it just getting better? Or was it the combination of both those things? I think it was because I'd always seen myself as somebody who could be one of the best rugby players in the world. And I think it's really hard, I think, for anyone to say that I was the best in the world in anything. But I think when you play sport for your country, you are considered amongst the best in the world. Mm. And I always knew the type of athlete that I wanted to be. I wanted to be really dominant, really physical, and just really aggressive player. And all of a sudden, when I almost had this taken away from me I wanted to prove to people that I could still do it I guess my obsession with wanting to prove people wrong came from my trip over in Afghan actually mm-hmm. um, where I got I was really badly bullied while I was there and had some sexual harassment and a few other things happen and off the back end of that when I got home and I was an absolute nutcase by the time I got home because I had to go through that for six months but never mind the war zone Yeah, no, everyone has a different... You know what? Actually, after that, I just realized that everybody has a different war and everyone has a different experience when they go over there. And I actually got diagnosed with PTSD off the back end of that. And for a really long time, I never said anything about it. And I knew what it was, but I never said anything about it because as a female, if you come back from Afghan and you say, yeah, I've got PTSD, it doesn't mean that I've got PTSD the same as what an infantry soldier may have. Mm. I have it based on the fact that, you know, some guy was just an absolute monster and Mm. everyone reacts differently. So what happened was I made a complaint about all this when I got home and I had to have, I was on 
stress leave for about six months. And about a year later, this verdict comes back and they told me that I had an attitude problem and that it was my fault. So after that, I was just, I don't want to be who they think I am and I'm not going to be what happened to me. I'm going to be exactly who I choose to be, which was a rugby player. And that was my motivation into wanting to become one of the best players in the world. Mm. And that's why when you say go all in, that 100% is the reason why I went all into rugby. So when I had this massive knee injury in 2017, I was like, well, what's the knee injury? This isn't going to stop me. I still have a goal and I'm just going to work as hard as I can. And if I don't make it, I don't make it. But if I do make it, that'd be a pretty cool story. And I made it. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Take me back, Molly, past before the army and when you were younger as, as a kid, as a teenager growing up, did you always have that determination inside of you to, to be bigger, faster, stronger, to prove yourself? Was that always there or is that something that was developed? Because I know as a soldier as well, especially as an infantry soldier, they kind of breed it into you a little bit. And some people would say that you get a little bit brainwashed, but being brainwashed with the will to win is a good thing. And the military is really good at teaching you how to win because the alternative is pretty uncool, which is death. So... The will to win is something that's inherent and that's created within us. Was that fire in your belly there before you were in the military? You know, I think with a lot of people, it's actually there. It's not always something that you can teach. Um, I did an interview with a girl recently over the Christmas holidays called Alyssa Azar, mm-hmm. and she's climbed Mount Everest twice, and she did wow. it before she was 21. Amazing. So she was incredible. And my podcast after that was with her dad. And I asked him that question. I was like, was she always this way? Was she always this hungry to be successful? Or was this something that you taught her? And he just said to me that there are people out there from when you're a child where you just have this desire to want to be the best at something. Mm -hmm. And I think that that was probably like that for me as well. She has maturity beyond my years anyways. (laughs) I think I've got about eight years on her. But when I was a kid, I always uh, wanted to be a swimmer. Probably why I you know, would want to sit down and have a chat with Ian Thorpe. But when I was a kid and I was swimming, I always had it that I wanted to be the best. So I'm this 10-year-old kid who's making my way up through the ranks and then you know, you go from, say, like A grade to the top grade and I was sitting in C grade and then I wanted to be in B grade. And then when I finally got to A grade and I was versing all the girls who were 17, 16 and I was 13... I was just like looking at them all one day and I was like, I am going to beat every single one of you. Mm -hmm. And I was so hungry for it all the time. And then by the time I was maybe 14, I was at the top and I was beating all of these kids who were like 16. And I was just like, this is amazing. I want to go to the Olympics. I want to be someone in swimming. And I knew that I always wanted to be somebody and I wanted to do something big. I mean, I got distracted when I was, 18. My parents went through a divorce. I turned into a bit of a rat bag at school and I think I actually nearly got kicked out of school. And yeah, I spent about five years maybe just sort of floating around being a bit of a muppet and not really taking life seriously. But it was always something that was there inside of me that wanted to be the best. I just had to find it and it took me a little while to find it. Yeah, it's all about maturity, isn't it? And it's about a a commitment. And I, I always say that when you decide to go all in, it's a really super positive thing that happens in your mind. 
because it's something that you, you make a decision to yourself and you're making that declaration to yourself, not to the world, it's to you that I'm going to commit to this. And when you decide you're going to commit to something, that's when you actually start living up to your potential because the word potential has like a future connotation to it. Like I can potentially do that in the future if I really try. I could be a surgeon if I really tried. I've got the potential to do that, but I just couldn't be bothered going studying for six years and then being a doctor for five years before I could even get there. Everyone has the potential to do amazing things, but it's not until you you commit and decide that you're going to go all in that you bring that potential from the future into the present. And it sounds like when you made your commitments there with rugby, that potential came to be pretty quickly for you, right? Yeah, like I've always said that I think the potential is a kind of dirty word just because there are so many people out there, especially in sport, where you're like, you have the potential to be Mm. so great and then a lot of people will hold on to that and they think that they are great without actually working to where they need to get to. People will just sort of sit at that, this is good enough level because someone once told them that they've got potential as opposed to saying that and then giving them a good swift kick in the ass to let's get you to where you need to be type of thing. I was told really early on in rugby, and it was actually after my very first game, that I had the potential to play for Australia one day if I wanted to. And after my very first game, I called mum and I was, mum, I want to play for Australia one day. <laughs> this is what I want to do. And um, Did it light a fire in your belly when somebody told you that? Something was there, it but lit- it switched it on though, right? Yeah, yeah, it definitely did. You know, it was just one of those things where I was, I could actually be really good at this if I wanted to. But that's the thing. Did I want to party or did I want to play rugby? And I wanted to do both. And if I was doing both, then I was only ever going to play rugby at a club level until one day I decided to pull my finger out and actually try for it. And, you know, like I said before, it was Afghan that made me go, all right, let's do this. And it was all because I was going to move to Thailand. You know, I was just so brain fried after I got home that I wanted to just completely run away from everything and do what plenty of people do and run to Thailand and be a PT. And mm. that's, you know, I had a job lined up and everything. And, but I still had that thing that was inside of me that was just like, this is your opportunity to go and try out for this team because the nationals, the tournament that I needed to go to was in the next month. Mm-hmm. And it was just sort of gnawing at me that it was something that I still had to do. And if I didn't do it, I was going to be so disappointed in myself. So I said to these people that I was going to work for, I'm like, I'm just going to go home, try out for this thing, you know, and if I make it, you won't see me again. But if I don't make it, I'll come back and I'll work for you guys. And I went home and I made it. And all of a sudden, that's when I made the switch of natural talent got me picked, but natural talent isn't going to make me one of the best. Mm. And that's when I just gave up everything. And, you know, I was, after Afghan, I picked up smoking and I had become an even bigger party animal than, you know, I've just got this dirty party girl that lives inside me. And, <laughs> and yeah, so I'd, I'd, I stopped drinking, I stopped smoking, I stopped everything. And I just, yeah, it, it takes a while. But once you decide that you want to do it, you know, it doesn't have to be a Monday. It doesn't have to, you know, it's like, oh, the weekend's coming up. I'll do it on the Monday or, oh, it's the holidays. I'll do it after the holidays. People always are waiting for the perfect time to just take themselves seriously. And I think one day you just wake up and you want to take yourself seriously. And that's exactly what happened to me. Yeah, it's beautifully articulated. I have a lot of feedback from this podcast. I receive a lot of emails and and a lot of communication through social media. 
And what, one of the things that people like about this show is the diversity of it and the different types of stories that people have because everybody's got their own version of going all in and, and people relate differently to different things. Tell me, Molly, if, if somebody is on the cusp of greatness with professional sport and they're about to make it, what would you say to them? What was the thing that helped you commit to it, that helped you break through and get on the other side and actually be successful in sport? Because that is just one of the most hyper-competitive things that a person could attempt to do because there's so many people out there and there's so much talent and ability out there. If you're on the, on the verge of that and, and about to do it, what would you say to a, to a listener? I think one of the biggest things, the best advice I could ever give anyone is stop with the excuses. So many people will say to you, but I've done everything that I can. And it's like, how many hours this week did you spend watching Netflix? How many times this week did you go out? How many times this week did you spend all of your time doing something, wasting time when you could have been putting your energy and your effort? I mean, you've obviously got to have balance. You absolutely have to have balance. But I think a lot of people will have a lot of excuses as to why they're not cracking it yet. And they also blame other people. And they're like, oh, they picked so-and-so over me and I don't know why. And it's like, well, they're probably better than you. Mm. You know, I think that people, when it comes to sport, you've got to be brutally honest with yourself. And you've also got to surround yourself with people who are going to be brutally honest with you as well. I think that that's so important. I've always asked people to be completely upfront and honest with me because I don't like fluff. And I'd say that that's probably the military in me as well. Mm -hmm. I would rather someone just tell me straight up whether I'm doing the right or the wrong thing. And, you know, I think people just need to try harder. They really do. You want something, you have to work at it. You've got to figure out how you can get there, what's the best way for you to get there and how to get noticed by selectors and things like that. So, yeah, my advice is just cut the excuses and go hard. I love it. That's that's like going all in at its absolute core. I, I love that. Thank you for sharing that with us. Tell me, what would you say about coaches and mentors? How important have they been for you in your journey as an athlete? When it comes to coaches, I, I've always been really particular. So when I was a kid and I was swimming – I was always, I always had to have a coach who got me. I think I'm a particular type of person where I, I like to have one-on-one -on -one coaching, but I also need to have a certain type of person as well. So generally I've had male coaches, uh, ones that are the no bullshit approach and will tell me when I'm being, you know, they'll, they'll pull me up when I'm, when I'm being a bitch and they'll pull me up when I'm not working hard enough. I just need someone who, sees what I see, but then who can also help to get me there as well. So my coach for uh, my strength and, strength and conditioning coach, I found him in Newcastle back in 2014 after my terrible debut. And I was prior to that, I was working with a guy who was just sending me a program and wasn't really that invested in me. And then when I met Darren, so Darren Coglin, he works out of um, GCS training and, and CrossFit Newcastle. And I went and I had a meeting with him and like straight up, I just clicked with this guy and we were vibing and I was trying to describe what it was that I wanted. And I was just like, I want to be an absolute monster. And then, so we started working together and I guess he had this, his style was that he never got mad if I didn't do something, but if anything, he would be disappointed. So then I was always working hard for him because I didn't want him to be disappointed in me because he was putting so much time into me. So I think with coaches, it's about, you know, finding people that, that, that you're responsive to. 
with team sports, you know, you always, you don't always get to pick your coaches, unfortunately. Mm. And sometimes you're going to feel like your coach doesn't see you or they're ignoring you or they're not paying you enough attention. And I think that that's where ego comes into it as well. So with team sports, you just have to be understanding of the fact that this person is dealing with 30, 35 other people. You have to be coachable. That's one thing that I don't think that I was. Because I came from individual sports, I always had a very individual mindset when it came to who I worked with. So then when I came into team sports, sometimes, you know, they would tell me something and I would argue with them about, I don't think that that's the right way for me to train. You know, I think I've got a better idea. I've worked with this guy before and he, you know, this is what he and I do. And I really screwed myself over a couple of times because I wasn't coachable to everybody. So that's one of the, yeah, that's one of the biggest things there. And then when it comes to mentors, I am such a fan of mentors. I think that they're amazing. I think it's really difficult sometimes though to ask for help and to ask someone to come on board and to mentor you. I think that, again, it all comes down to ego. You've got to get out of your own way because when it comes to sport or life or whatever it may be, there's no need to reinvent the wheel. If you're interested in something, so for instance, me now, Life After Rugby, I'm interested in podcasting, I'm interested in photography, and I'm interested in videography and media, pretty much anything media, that is where I want to be. I am constantly contacting people on LinkedIn, friends of friends who work in the media and just saying, do you want to have a coffee with me? I want to have a chat to you and pick your brain. And these people are so forthcoming. So don't reinvent the wheel. Go and find the people that can help you out, that can give you advice and guide you in the right direction. And that's the best part about mentors. And, you know, mentors are there to inspire you as well. And I have surrounded myself now with some of the most inspiring people who are just so happy to help. You know, I had the same with sport. I always had mentors as well. So I think it's really important that you're constantly chatting to people and, like I said, surrounding yourself with a good group of people who are on the same wavelength as you. Yeah, I love it. You know, it's a, it's a common theme amongst people that have been successful and that are successful is that they have coaches and mentors around them of different disciplines and different types and different flavors as well. And it's not always the same person or people over time as well. It can be something that changes over time as well. And uh, that's a really that's a really good reflection and a really good, good piece of feedback that you give there for people that are listening. Tell me, Molly, what has Rugby Union taught you about life? <laughs> if, you, if, you could, um, actually- if you could sum that up, what, what would it be just into – one or two statements. What, what, what are the biggest things that it's taught you? Say one or two statements, but I always give really long-winded answers. <laughs> Rugby taught me to find your tribe. And I've heard this so often recently, people always saying, find your tribe. Without rugby, I have no idea what I would be doing. You know, rugby gave me discipline. Rugby gave me a family. Rugby gave me direction. And rugby taught me you know, to really try if you want something. But rugby also gave me opportunity off the back end of that, which was media, which was future career prospects as well. So if anything, it just, yeah, it really did teach me to find find your tribe and, and surround yourself with people who have a common interest because once you do that, I guess life ends up being pretty incredible because you've got people around you with common interests. Yeah, I don't think it's. I don't think it really matters what sport you're part of, and sport is an institution here in Australia. And for younger people, when you find that early on in your life, 
that tends to remain with you until your early 30s, really. Some people a little bit longer, but if you can be part of a sports team into your early 30s, that's a that's a very, very cool thing, and it is reflective of virtually everything that you just said there as well. What about the military? Did that did that play a role in where you ended up in rugby? Yeah, military definitely did. I didn't start playing rugby until I was 19, so that was my second year of Army. And did you play in the Army then? as well? Yeah, 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 yeah. So I had a really different sort of rugby career to, to say, my, you know, my, my city teammates. So I started playing rugby for my brigade in 2009, and then I played for the Army in 2009. I didn't play for the Defence Force until 2011 because I was always way on exercise. But, yeah, finally got that, and then I got noticed by Rugby Australia in 2011 at my first national tournament. And then from there, you know, I just kept bouncing back in between Army and ADF rugby. And then in 2013, when they were finally announced, um, they were finally picking the next Wallaroo side. You know, I went away with ADF. I got noticed in that side. And then that's how I got picked up. So Army has really been the key to my success in rugby because of the, um, I guess, the leniency they have with sport and the opportunity Mm. with sport as well. And, you know, I think any boss I've ever had would say that I was probably quite a handful because I was always so rugby orientated as opposed to work orientated. Mm-hmm. I personally have not gone outfield in over seven years. <laughs> I wouldn't even know how to set up a hooky these days, I don't think. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, it, it's really given me a lot. It's given me a lot. And Army has been, yeah, really forthcoming with helping me to get to the top of rugby as well. So it's... Yeah, it's, it's been the, the main source of my rugby career. How did you discover that in the Army? Was there just like a game on and you thought, oh, I'll go and have a crack at that and see what happens? Or like, What was your first experience of it? It was, I was in Darwin. So I tried rugby when I was 17 and I was in high school and my mum always played. So my mum started playing when she was about 35 maybe. Oh. And as a kid, I would always go to her games. And when I tried it, I absolutely hated it. Someone hit me and I was like, no, this sport is not for me. Contact sport like that is hard. Yeah, it's hard when you're older. Yeah, so much harder on the body. But yeah, so I said that I would never play rugby. And then so I'm in Darwin and I've got, I've just met this girl who was, you know, ended up being a really good friend of mine. And she was like, oh, I'm just going to go after rugby training. And I was like, what are you even talking about? I hadn't even heard about, you know, that much like representative sport in the army and what you could do with it and stuff. So she told me to come to rugby training and I turned up and then I went and bought a pair of boots and had no idea what was going on. Like I couldn't catch, I couldn't pass, I didn't know the rules. My brother was there as well. So my brother, he was posted to Darwin as well and we just started playing for the brigade and he hated it that I was there, absolutely hated it. It was his first year playing brigade. He was trying to make the army side as well and all of a sudden I was on tour with them all the time. He got picked to go over to New Zealand on the men's development tour and after my very first game of rugby, I somehow had these two old selectors come up to me and they were like, you did so great. We want to take you on the tour to New Zealand with the men's team. And I was like, this is weird. I don't know why I'm going on this tour. But I said, yes. Mm-hmm. My brother was also picked as well. His first tour. <laughs> His little sister is coming away with him. And he was so annoyed. <laughs> so annoyed. And uh, But he just had to roll with it. I learned. So much so. I was really lucky and really fortunate that I was able to learn how to play rugby from the men's side straight up. They hit harder. I had to learn to tackle harder. I scrummed with these with these three dudes 
to, they were in the front row and they were massive. And I got shoved in the second row and I had to put my head between the two prop thighs. <laughs> and it was, I don't think I've ever felt that much pressure in my entire life. Like it was hectic. But I've always loved the fact that that's how I learned to play rugby was with the guys. And then ever since 2009, every two of my brothers been on, I've pretty much been on as well. And it used to be, it was, I loved it. Everyone used to refer to me as Josh Gray's sister. And then the better I got at rugby and the more I started to represent, it's now, oh, you're Molly Gray's brother. I get it. Uh, <laughs> flip the tables and really annoy the big brother. Yeah, yeah. He used to hate it. He absolutely hated it. But now he's sort of just like, eh, whatever. He's like, people know me now. It's fine. So, yeah, that was really cool. So I started off with that in Darwin and, yeah, we just, started playing more from there and that's what I love about the army the brigade sport leads to so many other trips away and representative stuff and it was it was an amazing journey well I was going to say for the people that are listening that have never served in the military and and most militaries that I know of and well western ones anyway are really good at promoting sport they're really good at promoting teamwork and fostering all those sorts of things and whatnot and it's a what you've just described is a really good example of the Australian Army and how it promotes all those sorts of things. You know, if you want to work hard in your career, progress or change jobs while you're there, you can do that for sure. But sport is something that's not really talked about very much and it's given you a, a leg up into something pretty special with the Wallaroos, right? Yeah, it, it was really funny because when I first got picked in the Army side, it was awesome and I spent two weeks away. And then I came back to work and I was like, oh, sorry, guys, they picked again. So I had to convince my work to let me go away for another two weeks. And were they and okay about back. it when you did that? You came back and... Well, I guess the people, and this is anywhere, this is just life in general. When you are the person who gets to play sport and who gets to go away for sport, you're obviously very enthusiastic about it. The people back home at work, who maybe answers, let's say, not into sport. Maybe they're not good enough. Maybe they just never tried out for it. They don't get to go anywhere. But that's not my fault Mm. that you choose not to play sport. And that's what I've always said to them. I was like, if you wanted to do this, you could. I copped a lot of flack for a lot of years. I've pretty much, yeah, been in for 11 years. And I have always, I spent every year navigating how am I going to get the most I can out of rugby this year and also make work not hate me at the same time. So I got denied my first, I made the ADF side in my first year but I wasn't allowed to go on the trip. In the second year, I was away somewhere doing something. But yeah, as the years went on, I was always, people started to, as I made my way up through the ranks, I started to get a lot more leniency. I had a little bit of top cover as well, so that was pretty handy. That helps. Uh, but everyone calls it the rugby mafia. If you're, I've, I've heard stories about, and I don't know if you've ever, you've probably heard them as well. You know, guys go out field and all of a sudden this chopper comes in and picks up a bunch of dudes from the rugby team and takes them off away from field. They don't have to do the exercise anymore because apparently they're needed to play rugby. Like, it, I've heard some funny stories when it comes to the privileges of playing rugby in the Army. So. I have to say, you know, you're leaving yourself wide open there for some criticism from the grunt on this side of the podcast because that no one ever came in a helicopter to pick up anyone from my unit to go and play rugby. And there were some pretty good freaking players in my unit. See, I've, I've never seen this happen, but I've heard about it's it. And I've heard it? about it from the older guys. I'm not right. saying that it ever happened to me, but, <laughs> but um, I missed out on many, many, many field uh, exercises because I was playing rugby. And 
it's actually, it's been really interesting because I copped a lot of criticism for so many years about the fact that people said that I didn't work. And I think that that's one of the really interesting things about the army is that everyone thinks that you need to have that cookie cutter career. Mm-hmm. If you enlist as a, as a class or if you enlist as an infantry soldier or whatever the hell you enlist as, that is what you have to do. If you and I had the same job, your career has to look exactly like my career. But I don't think that that's the case at all. I think that you would be stupid not to go out and grab the opportunities that are presented to you. I find that, you know, there's a lot of people out there that will say no. There's a lot of people in the Defence Force that will say no. But I think you, after a little while, people stop asking for things because they just assume that people are always going to say no. But I never stopped asking. You know, I always tried to work around it and just be like, well, if you give me this, then I, I will contribute back in this way. And, you know, I did that for a really long time. I was always like bartering my time with my bosses. And then after Afghan, I got out for a little bit. I got out for about six months and then I got picked up by the rugby team, by the Wallaroos. And I decided to get back in because I knew that playing the Wallaroos, I had to train a lot, but I didn't know what other job I could do that would support me as much as what the army would. Because Mm. the army loves that you play sport for your country. So I went, came back and I did CFPS for about 12 months, which was amazing. And they were really, really great about it. What, what is and that for the people that don't know the sorry. military acronyms? <laughs> it's the only acronym I know now. So I was contracted for 12 months mm-hmm. to come back and participate as if I was back in the full-time army as opposed to being a reservist. So they gave me 12 months on that contract. And then 2015, I actually got picked up by the Australian Sevens team. And that was a fully professional, full-time, contracted, paid gig. And I remember when that happened, I didn't know what to do. You know, I was back in the army and I was just like, I can't pass up this opportunity because I have a chance to go to the Olympics. Mm. And I somehow worked out a deal with somebody in the army where I was given 12 months off work. My place of parade was at the sports center every single day i got paid i got my people are going to hate me for this by the way i got my rent (laughs) and i'm i'm sorry guys i really am but no i got my rental assistance and i got everything still i was still considered a soldier i was posted into a pool position but i got to turn up to rugby every single day for 12 months and it was the most amazing experience and it was all because i was constantly asking questions and i was always trying to figure out what I loved and what I was passionate about. And there's a lot of people out there that say that I maybe use the army. And I don't think I ever did though, because I'm just as passionate about, someone actually said to me the other day that they go, I hope you find your passion for the army again. And I was like, that's a really strange thing to say because I've been in for 11 years and I wouldn't stay in if I wasn't passionate about it. My passion isn't necessarily going out field (laughs) (laughs) and not showering and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, rugby is an opportunity that Army provides. And because I was constantly asking questions and always trying to do my best at that, they were really forthcoming with helping me achieve that, and they did. So I always found it really challenging that people were hating on me so much because somebody in the Army said yes. Well, I just believe that the any job that you do, it doesn't matter if you're in the military or just a regular job, if there's opportunities there, it's up to you to go and seize them. You know, the, the the military is just a government organization. It's a big it's a big monolithic thing and there's so many different things that you could be doing 
in the military, if you just go out there and ask a few different people, and even if you're just not in the military, if you just go out there and ask your boss what other opportunities are out there, I think you'll be surprised, and you might even be pleasantly surprised. And it doesn't sound like you use the army. You just position yourself correctly because that's what you could do, and that was the opportunity that presented itself. And other people are jealous because they never thought of doing that themselves. Yeah, I think that people need to, you know, we always we always talk about taking the initiative mm. and and then people feel like they get in trouble for taking the initiative, but then the army still encourages it. I always took the initiative when it came to my sport and what I was passionate about. And I was like, if I can be a part of an organisation that supports me with what I want to do, then why would I not do it? I don't want to be one of those people, and we all know them who, and it doesn't matter whether you're whether it's military, whether it's civilian, whether it doesn't matter what it is. There are people out there who sit in the same job for 20 years and they whinge about how much they hate it. I fell into that when I was maybe at about my four or five year mark. Mm. And then that's when I decided to make a change. And my army career has been amazing ever since. You know, after my 12 months, I didn't make the Olympic side. I got dropped to do with that me not being very coachable because I had a wee bit of an ego at the time. And you can see where when I was talking about being coachable, where you have an opportunity and because you can't get out of your own way, you actually miss an opportunity. And mine was to miss out on, you know, going to the Olympics, but was really fortunate that Army supported me through that as well. And then off the back end of that, they said to me, what do you want to do? And I said, I really wanted to go into recruiting. I love recruiting. I love people. I love talking and I love presenting. And, you know, so then Army were really great about that. And they sent me off to recruiting for 12 months. And it was so cool. I got to interact with school kids, with young people coming through, with mature age people who were coming through. And, you know, people always talk about recruiting as like, (laughs) you know, it was that damn recruiter's fault because I'm now in a job that I hate. (laughs) But I always made sure that I wasn't like that. You know, I always described what my career was like, but I also described what other people's careers are like. And I was like, you can come in here, you can be as green as you want, or you can create opportunity for yourself as well. However, you do have to work your way up to be able to get there. You have to give back. And I feel like I really did give a lot of time and a lot of energy into the army. You know, I went over to Afghan. I had something terrible happen to me while I, when I was over there. And then so I decided to make it work for me off the back end of that as well. And I don't think that that's a bad thing. I think that's been opportunistic. But yeah, you know, it's just been, it is what it is. You just, I think you just have to go for it. And if you don't go for it, then what are you doing? You know, people are just, wasting time exactly that's exactly right so molly bring the bring the goal in story full circle for me where you're playing a game you get hit from the side someone absolutely decimates your knee the doctor gives you a little bit of a bit of a excuse the pun a leg up by giving you an extra month ahead of it so it takes you five months not six months to get better do you make it to the world cup i did i did just did you run out on the field did you play some games Tell, tell us about it so, okay, so basically when I when I did it, in my head I was like, I, I was crying my eyes out on the field because as soon as my foot hit the ground and I felt my whole knee go, I knew what it was and I knew what the time restraints were around that. So I cried for a little bit, I went home and I cried some more and then um, <laughs> I remember crying in the street at one point as well. When you were someone crying a lot. A little bit. <laughs> I cried a lot, yeah. So I go into my surgeon's office and we, I've already got my scans and he's like, right, we've got to do this. And as soon as he said to me, I think that we can probably get there. I was just like, right, what have I got to do? So I also, here's the thing. 
I also thought that I was going to get booked into surgery the next day. That was, I was like, yeah, I'm going to go see him. He's going to book me in. I'm going to have like five and a half, six months. We're going to be fine. And he turns around and he's just like, no, nah, I've got to wait a month for this. Because it, it was so severe. He was like, on a scale of one to 10, one being, eh, it's all right. And being, it was really bad. Mm. He's like, it was like a nine and a half. Gosh. I was like, all right. So I've had to wait a month for my knee for the swelling to go down before he would even consider operating on it. And I was really angry at him because I was like, you're literally giving me five months to make it back. Mm. And he's like, I think you could do it. So I played around with the idea for a little while and I spoke to my, and this is where I recruited this team of people who were all on the same wavelength as me and my surgeon. And I had my trainer and I had my chiropractor. And everyone, every time I say chiropractor, everyone's like, uh, isn't that just like cracking bones and doing all that? But total rehab specialist. Right. Absolutely amazing. So I get out of surgery and I've got this thing called a Compex. And it's a muscle stimulation machine where you hook it up to wherever it is on your body and you have like four of them. And it just starts to, all of these electrodes start to go and you can contract your muscles because obviously when you, when you do something like a knee, your muscles deteriorate and you need mm. to be able to turn them back on. Mm. So I use this machine to help me out. I woke up from surgery and I chucked it on my leg straight away. My mum walks in and she goes, get that thing off your leg. <laughs> and I told her she was crazy and I didn't relax. I stayed off my leg for the first week and then in the second week, that's when we sort of got things going again. And I was squatting, like box squatting after about seven days and I was lunging. These were like really ugly lunges. They weren't all the way down. I was literally just like going through the motions of stepping forward and trying to go a little bit deeper Mm. and constantly just seeing where I was at and always pushing it a little bit. And there were so many people out there who were like, this chick is so dumb, like all on on social media. This chick's an idiot. She's going to need a revision. She's doing this. She's doing that. She's rushing it. You know, she's got to give her leg time. And I was like, well, I don't have time. All I have is five months. And if I want to make it back, I have to do everything that I can to be able to get there in time. So I went through five months of intensive rehab, pushing boundaries. I ran it like six weeks. I don't think you're supposed to run until 12, but mm. I ran it six. And I did it on the sand at the beach under, this was, this was never me going off on tangents by myself. It was always the people that I was working with who were giving me the approval to do stuff. But we also knew the risk the entire time. I could re-rupture it at any point, but you know, I wanted to go as hard as I could to give my opportunity. So I spoke to my Australian coaches as well, and they said to me that if I could make it back in time, that they would take me. And I was asking them about game time, and I just said, I don't know if I can play a game before I go. And they're like, we just want you to get 10 minutes out on the field. With any team, it doesn't matter. It's not to prove to us that you can play. We know that you can play. Just for your own for your own headspace, mm. just to you know get over the jitters of that yourself. So I did that, and I played probably eight minutes on on a field with my in Maitland at my in my hometown. It's about two hours north of Sydney, and um, I went back there, and it was so much fun. It made it into the newspaper that I was actually going to turn up and play, and there were so many people. There was like a couple of hundred people at the field, all excited to like see me play. And I get out there, I'm sitting on the bench for the like, majority of the game and I come back on with about 10 minutes to go. And I think I only ended up playing about two minutes because of all the stoppages. And I was cool with that. And I was like, all right, sick. You know, it was amazing though to see how many people were out there supporting me as well. You know, my hometown has been 
one of the biggest driving forces behind, you know, just getting around me, rallying around me and giving me encouragement as well, which has been, you know, while you're undergoing rehab like that, it's really great to know that, yeah, there are people out there that hate you, that yeah. don't like what you're doing. You just got to, you know, channel them, like, you know, just ignore those ones. But, you know, really take in the people that are really positive about what it is that you're trying to do. So the team gets announced. I hadn't even actually, by the time the team got announced to go to Ireland to play, I hadn't even played this little game yet. And I felt really bad because somebody got dropped to bring me back into the side. And I felt really bad about that. But I also had to remind myself that I'd been in the team since 2014, that I had worked my ass off to get here. And if the coaches want to drop somebody to bring me in, then that's not my fault. Mm. This is just my opportunity. And when I got into camp, everyone was amazing. Everyone was just like, I can't believe you're here. And I was like, I can't believe I'm here either. (laughs) But that's where things sort of took a bit of a turn for me because so our very first game, we're in the sheds. I've got the number six jersey back on. And I couldn't even believe that I got a starting jersey. Like, I think that the coach was probably a little bit mad to give that to me and not to have me come off the bench. But, I mean, that was what it was. And I just ran with it. I was like, all right, your choice. I'll just do what i got to do. But the captain was giving this, this speech in, in the shed prior to when we ran out. And I all of a sudden became so aware that I had had this horrific knee injury. I'd just undergone months of intensive rehab and all of a sudden I am back here with my teammates and everyone's looking really serious and I'm starting to well up and I'm starting to get really emotional. Mm -hmm. One of my mates looked at me and she was just like, cut it, stop fucking crying. Get hold of yourself. (laughs) I was like, okay, all right. I'm like, I'm not sad. I'm just really excited. (laughs) I was just losing my shit. Anyway, so I like switch back on. We go out there. We line up, we're playing Ireland in Ireland for the very first game of the 2017 World Cup. The national anthem comes on and I start blubbering like a fucking baby. <laughs> like it was so funny. I was, I've never been able to get to an entire anthem. But as soon as I opened my mouth to start singing, I saw my mum and my sister in the crowd who'd flown all the way over from Australia. And I was just so overwhelmed and I was like, holy shit, mm. I did it. It was amazing. Hey, it was just such a cool feeling. That's a, uh, it's, a it's an epic tale of the, the phoenix rising from the ashes and the, the, the commitment to go all in and, and get better and, and have that goal to get there. And I'm sure that that's probably a, a big part of your recovery is actually having a big major goal like that to aim at. What was the game like? What happened? Did you run on with the opening side or did you come off the bench? No, no, no. So I, I, I ran on with the opening side. I So we had five games and I was a starter for three of them. Um, and for the final two, I was on the bench because my legs wasn't coping because as it turns out, I actually re-ruptured my ACL three weeks before we even got on the plane to go. Oh my gosh. Um, so, yeah. So I was at a, I was, I was doing some running with a men's team one night and I was probably doing, I definitely was doing too much, but I was also at that when you get to the end point of your rehab and you start to think, shit, am I doing enough? And I mm. started to do a little bit more and then it turns out I was doing too much. Yep. So I was running along one day. We dropped to the ground and I pop up to jump up and run backwards. And as I pushed off my, my injured leg, my whole knee just like snapped in and I ended up on the ground. And I was sitting there and it didn't hurt, but I felt something. And I was just like, everyone's like, are you all right? And I was like, oh, I think I've done my ACL. 
And the physio had a look at it. And obviously, when you're when you're testing an ACL, if the leg keeps moving, you've snapped your ACL. But I had an endpoint, which meant that it wasn't going as far. And I went back to see the surgeon, and he did the same thing. And he's like, "It's holding." He's like, "It's just loose, but it's there." And I was like, "Okay." So I go over to Ireland, and all of a sudden, I hadn't done any contact, mind you, like mm. other than that skinny, tiny little game where I just like completely obliterated some poor winger by jumping on her back or something. It was hilarious. But other than that, I had no big contact. And all of a sudden, I met this World Cup versus girls who are just as big and strong as me. The only difference is those girls have got two working legs. I've only got one. <laughs> <laughs> and my knee started to swell up really bad. So... Every four days, I was having 60 to 80 mils of fluid, which is like three syringes. Mm. Yeah, three or four syringes of fluid being drained out of my knee every four days whilst we're at this World Cup. So I am doing everything that I can to get myself ready for these games. And, you know, I have my knee drained because it felt like jelly. Like there was, my leg was so fat that it felt like my kneecap was just floating around inside it. So the day before the game, we would they'd put a local in my leg. They'd draw out all this fluid. I would they would strap it to the max, like it was hectic. And then I'd go out onto the field. I would do my best for forty minutes, and then I would come off because there was another girl who was also previously like I was a starter and a full eighty-minute player, but she was going through a knee injury as well. So they were switching the two of us out because realistically, we could both only last forty minutes which also was, it really bruised my ego to know that I went from being an 80-minute player, like mm. a very powerful player, to this person who was just like, oh, all I've got in me is 40 minutes, but I'm going to try and make it a good 40 minutes. But I also became a really timid player. So I was always really well-known for like my ball running in attack, and I was terrified to take the ball into contact. And I, like on the fly, I really had to figure out what it was that I could contribute to this team that would match the standard of a World Cup. So, you know, I think I ended up having a 90% tackle rate, which I was happy with, but my whole style of the game changed and that really, really, really stuffed around with my head. And so, you know, I'm having this knee drain still every four days and it got to the very end of it. And I remember I just broke down at the end and I was like, I can't do this anymore. Like this is so stressful and I don't know if it's worth it. I was still really proud of myself for going through rehab and going all in mm. and really giving myself the opportunity. But when you think about it, sometimes the reality of the situation is when you do things like that, you don't maybe consider what the consequences are going to be off the back end of it, especially when it comes to rehab. And I don't look at what I did as a bad thing, but it definitely could have been done smarter. And my surgeon says the same thing to me now. And, you know, it's all hindsight now and it is what it is. And, you know, I, I had to retire off the back end of rugby, which sucked. Yeah, I'm still definitely really proud of what I did, but it was a struggle. The actual game, rehab was hard. Playing was playing was a whole other ball game. That was mentally one of the hardest things I think I've ever done. Yeah, I'm sure. Where, where did you finish up in the tournament? Uh, I think we finished up six. Out of how many yeah, teams? Yeah, so we didn't. 12. Mm-hmm. So last time, last 2014 World Cup, we finished seventh. This time we finished sixth. So it wasn't great. I mean, it could have been better, but I mean, it is what it is, really. Um, Australian rugby is a little bit behind mm. all of the European countries European as well ones, yeah. and the UK and things like that. 
So, you know, we, we still had a really long way to go. And I think uh, Australian women's rugby 15 is working on it. Over the last two two years, it's been, you know, they've been working really hard to get it to where it needs to be. So, yeah, like we finished sixth. It wasn't bad. It wasn't great. I, I battled for a while after I retired as to whether it was worth it. But I think one of the best realizations that I've had now off the back end of it was that rugby is actually, for me, just a stepping stone into something bigger and better. Yeah. You learn a lot of really cool lessons by dedicating yourself to a process to achieve something. But you also need to know that there is life after, you know, for me personally, there's life after sport, there's life after rugby, but you do have to just figure it out. And then you sometimes sort of figure out what you want to put your energy into next. Like mm-hmm. what is your next all in moment? Yeah, absolutely. Well, what what is your next all-in moment? Now the professional sport career is over, is the military career coming to an end as well? It is, yeah. So yeah. It's, a, it's, a double, it's a double whammy. It's a double whammy in a transition. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so I spent all of last year dealing with, dealing with the transition out of rugby, and it was pretty hard. I did not fare very well. So people always talk about what it's like as an athlete to transition out and I always considered myself a really resilient person. Obviously, I've gone through all of the stuff that I went through in Afghan. And I've gone through one, two, three knee reconstructions. I've gone through, well, now I just had a, another surgery the other day. So <laughs> I'm up to number four. But I always considered myself a really resilient person just from my upbringing as well. But off the back end of the third surgery, the one after World Cup, I just was consumed by pain. So whenever I had knee surgery while I was playing, what I used to do was take myself off endone and all my painkillers after the second day and I would just sort of sit with what the pain actually, this is, this is a little bit crazy actually, but I used to just sit with it and, and feel what pain feels like. So it honestly, most of the time it felt like my knee was ripping apart and I all I wanted to do was sit there and suck on an endone, but... I wanted to know what the pain felt like. So when I was in rehab and I was back in the gym and I was training and I started to get tired and I started to say, oh, this is painful, I would go, no, this isn't painful. Mm -hmm. That's painful. That other pain is Mm -hmm. painful. And there's two different types of pain. There's the pain where your body says to you, that's enough. Like this is a a warning. This Mm -hmm. is enough. You need to slow down. But then there's also the other pain, which is just pain from training, which is pain that you need to push past and have that mental resilience and that capacity to go forward and you know I think with military background as well whether you know you, you believe it or not it actually all that shitty training that we've done over the years and all of those things it's about finding your limit and then being able to push past that as well for just that little bit longer you know you're out there doing something that sucks how long can you do it for you mm-hmm. can do it for actually quite a while if you just hold on so you got to go in I was going to say, did you struggle with that after you finished rugby? Like after all of those games and everything you went through, did it really come home to roost on your debt? I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it anymore. I just, I was on painkillers for weeks. I just didn't want to. My body and my mind was just exhausted. Yeah. Okay. And yeah, so I was on painkillers for a really long time. I stopped going to the gym. And I decided to pick up a bottle or two or three or four, and I was drinking all the time. Like there, there, there be that transition right there. That's a difficult, yep, yep. that's a difficult thing, right? It's a very difficult thing. Yeah, mm. hits you full force. Hey, I um, I didn't expect it, but I also didn't realize yep. that I had a problem. I was drinking most nights of the week. I was partying about 
four times a week as well. <laughs> Not just drinking, it was partying. Yeah, it was hard. Yeah. I did things that I had never done before and I was just completely out of control. I was turning up to work like obliterated most days. Mm. And the really interesting thing was that nobody seemed to notice. No one at work, my friends didn't notice. Everyone was like, oh, she's just having fun. She's just whatever. But I was miserable, absolutely miserable. And I think that people thought that I was okay because my life after rugby actually led me into working for Fox Sports. While I was playing, I'd always been in touch with our media guy and I'd said, you know, whatever interviews that you have, like I'd love to do them because I would really love to get into the media. That's Mm -hmm. what I wanted to do. And then I'd done so much of that while I was playing that when I retired, there was this opportunity that came up and they wanted a female player on one of their shows and they rang me and they said, do you want the job? And I was just like, hard out. This is amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I started commentating the Super W as well. And that was all with Fox. And I was turning up to the studio, you know, once a week and you get, you turn up like a couple of hours early. They put like a full face of makeup. They do your hair. I had a whole wardrobe that they gave me. Like, <laughs> It was amazing. What was interesting about that, though, was that that was on a Wednesday and every other day around that, I was absolutely off my face. But I would get myself together for a Wednesday or a Saturday if I was commentating. I would turn up. I would do my job. But other than that, my life was like out of control, hey, absolutely out of control. But everyone thought that I was okay because she was on top. Yeah, right. It was really weird. You just never know what's going on inside of somebody's head and, and I would encourage uh, anybody that's listening that thinks if somebody that they know that's close to them has got a problem to ask because if somebody had have asked, you probably would have said something, right? You were right? Yeah, yeah. Well, it was actually it was actually an ex-boyfriend that rang me up and see, I'd had the knee surgery and I was with him at the same time and then I broke up with him like a month later because I was just like, not, I don't want to do anything anymore and I just like completely cut everything. And he rang me, I think it was about six months later, and he was just like, are you okay? And I was like, no. And I just started crying on the phone. And I'd already sort of recognized that there was something wrong. I was at a, I was at a function, one of our big sponsor functions, and I reckon I probably became one of the drunkest people there. Probably embarrassed myself a little bit. Next morning I woke up and I was just like, I was always so well known for being really disciplined <laughs> really strong, really great the athlete. Of yeah. And then now all of a sudden everyone's like, oh, look, Molly's here. Let's, uh, you know, let's get ready to party because Molly's here. And I didn't like that. And I didn't like knowing that my reputation was turning into me being a party animal. I was like, Fuck, I'm not 18 years old anymore. Like I have built this great reputation and I was single-handedly ruining it. So after that, I woke up and I went on like dry July and I, um, I stayed off the booze for about six weeks, I reckon. And I signed up for uni. I started working. I actually started being contributing to my workplace and I started to get my life together again. And I also ended up going to Rugby Australia and I just, I told them everything and I just said, it's not my responsibility to identify that there's something wrong with me. I went away to the World Cup and you all knew that I had to come back and have surgery again on the same leg that Mm. gave me so much grief last year. Nobody called. My coaches, the doctor didn't call. Nobody called me. And I was just, I'm really lucky that I've been through everything that I've been through and I definitely will bring in like Afghan into that, which always, you know, adds up to me being a resilient person. 
And I'm so glad that this happened to me because I know that I can bounce back out of this sort of stuff. And I worry sometimes that if it was somebody else, I don't know what would have happened to them. So I'm really glad that I was the one that went through it because I was able to drag myself out. And I just said, this isn't good enough. What do we do now for all of the other girls who are going to retire? Because I want to make sure that this never happens to anyone else again. I'm happy to be your guinea pig for this. But I, I want to make sure that no one ever has to go through what I went through because transition, and as we all know, as you know, for those who have transitioned out of the military, sport and military are very, very, very similar. There's been a lot of studies done where the similarities to transition are just almost identical because you go through identity, you go through uh, even, oh, even daily routines. You know, with rugby, it's like I got up every day with a purpose. My purpose was, you know, I would go to training and then I would eat, and then I would recover, and then I would go back to training, and then I would eat, and I would recover, and my day was completely structured. Yeah. And army is the same. Obviously, you turn up at, you know, what is it, 20 past 7, quarter past 7, whatever, you go on parade, your day is just completely mapped out. So Not sure yeah, what so unit I, you were in, but I didn't turn up at 7 o'clock in the morning. It was like 5 o'clock in the morning or something ridiculous. Oh, okay. Well, that's, but, that's where we're different. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, in, in all seriousness, year in, year out of that stuff, you know, in a career of structure and things like that, it is very, very hard to go through those things. And, you know, I think the, the very first thing that anybody could do to stop it happening again to anybody else is to hear your story and to share that story and to make sure that they know what potentially can happen on the other side of a transition. Um, there's also good things, many, many good things that happen on the other side of the transition, hence the Fox Sports thing. That's a really good thing. But all the other stuff that's there is not so great as well. And it's really important that people understand that there's two sides to that as well. And I think you're going a long way to helping people to understand what that actually feels like and looks like as well. Yeah, like I think that it's it's really funny. You know, we, we talk about the power of social media and it's, it's actually a very fake world and we all know that as well. And what you see on someone's social media, so what people saw with me was going from being this, you know, Australian rugby player to all of a sudden I'm working at Fox and I'm this Fox Sports presenter. I'm on a show and I'm in the army and I'm doing all these really cool things. But then when I'm at home, I'm fucking miserable. And I was constantly upset and like grieving my leg and grieving my life and and just, you know, I wasn't over the fact that I wasn't a rugby player anymore. Mm. And it's just, you know, all it takes is someone to give you a call and just say, are you okay? You know, we talk about that all the time. Mental health is the flavor of the year at the moment, and which is not a bad thing. I think it's amazing. But when you say, are you okay? You actually have to sit there and listen to the person as well and make sure that they are. And then you've got to figure out what to do next. You know, my biggest thing was to sober the hell up and to just get some direction back in my life. And, you know, and that's exactly what I did. And then off the back end of that, I've really started to figure out what it is that I want to do. So that was me all last year. And then I get to the start of this year and I'm like, right, I'm going to get back into fitness. I'm just <laughs> going to start smashing that out because I was such a booze hound last year that I didn't really step foot in the gym again. So I start going to the gym this year and all of a sudden my knee blows up and I'm like, what is going on? Like it was so painful and all of a sudden, I find out that I've got to go in for my fourth surgery. And I was, oh, I was, I was a bit down for, for a couple of weeks, but I was just like, oh, get over yourself. You know, you're not dead. Mm. You're not dead. You've got a great job. You've got some really great career prospects as well. I go in, I had surgery. It is what it is. 
But then all of a sudden it's like, so we're looking at medically discharging you now. So that is, this year is, is going to be my next big hurdle with, you know, what is next? And we talk about going all in. So it's like figuring out what do I want to do? I got 12 months to figure this shit out. And it's not scary at all. But I think when it comes to, and for those who have transitioned out of defense, you know, some have it easy, some have it hard. If you're smart about it, you figure out what you want to do and you find out what you're passionate about. And then you just have to work towards setting yourself up to be able to do that. And that's going to be me for the next 12 months. You know, I'm really interested in media and that's basically what I'm diving into and, and trying to do anything and everything that I can. Finding the right people to teach me and to or to coach me, if you want to call it that. Finding the right mentors and then finding those opportunities as well. Well, it, uh, that was actually my very next question. What does the future hold for you? And, and that sounds like it's a little bit scary and it's also very exciting at the same time because the future is unknown and so long as you've got a plan and you've found the next mission, whatever that mission is for you, I'm, I'm sure that's going to be uh, something that you can work towards. And they're the, you seem like a very goal-orientated person. And ha- have you got something on the horizon immediately? Is there something in the near future? Um, I've just been asked to come back on Fox this year as well. So they've got another show and I'm going to come in and, and I'll have my little four-minute segment at the end of that to be able to talk about the women. So they've got the Super W, so I'll be able to cover all of that. I'm going to go back and commentate the women's games again. And I've actually got the Australian games as well. So there's some really cool opportunities for me to work within Fox. Mm-hmm. We've created the Classic Wallaroos, which is the alumni group of Wallaroos. So all of the previous, you know, all the retired Wallaroos, from, from being able to go and open up to Rugby Australia, we've, able, we've been able to form this group. The Wallabies have always, like, have had the Classic Wallabies for a really long time. But now we've got the women's one of that. So... I get to help out with that and be really involved with that as well, which is really great for me. And then I've, um, you know, gone down the road that you've gone down. I've started my own podcast because I want to speak to, you know, female athletes. And I do believe that everyone has, you know, you see all these sports stars and you think that everyone follows the same path. But then when you hear their stories, you realize that everyone is so different and the capacity that we have to inspire others. You know, I think that that's a really powerful thing. And it's also really fascinating as well. So, started podcasting, started some photography, started some videography. Keep in mind, across all of those things that I've just mentioned, I have absolutely no idea what I am doing. No idea at all. But I'm super excited about it because I never knew how to play rugby and then I did. Well, that's right. I, yeah, I was knew. just going to say, you've you got to start somewhere. Everybody starts somewhere. It's no big deal if you don't know. You've just got to surround yourself with the right people and they'll help you get where you need to be. Yeah, people get really scared that, you know, you're supposed to have your life sorted out by the time you're 30. You know, I'm 30 this year, actually. So September this year, I'll be 30. I'm single. I have no house. I haven't found my dream job yet. I haven't really figured that side of life out yet, but I'm totally cool with that. And I'm about to dive into this new, I wouldn't even call it a career, actually. It's not a career yet. It's just things that I really like that I'm trying to be good at. And I'm so cool with that because you know there's so many I'd rather try out and do something that I'm really passionate about than sit in a job that I'm miserable at so starting changing jobs at nearly 30 is not a bad thing I think that you know we just have to make sure that we do the things that make us happy and that's exactly what I'm trying to do and if at some point I figure out that I don't like it or I'm not good enough to do it then I'll do like I'll change again you know it's not a bad thing people get worried 
that you've got to be sorted. So you don't really have to do that much. I think you just have to have an idea about what it is that you want to do and constantly be striving to, I'm really goal orientated. I always have been. So I always set myself little miniature goals and I have some really big goals for myself as well. So I'm constantly moving forward. And I think that that's the most important thing. Yeah, dead right. Well, what, what is it, Molly, that you do each day that's absolutely not negotiable? What is it that you do to keep bringing your A game and what is it that keeps you sharp and focused? You know, it's, while I was playing, I always did a lot of, not, I wouldn't call it journaling, but I wrote a lot. I'd always write on pieces of paper and stick them around my house. And I always reminded myself of who I was and who I wanted to be and what I wanted to achieve in rugby. And I found that that was, um, that really worked for me while I was playing. When I retired, I didn't do that anymore. I think if I had to do something every single day now, it would be to get up and go down to the beach and go jump in the water. No matter how cold it was, it was probably like, you know, pissing down rain and maybe not. But that's something that I always found that just sort of resets me for the day now. And it just, just really relaxes me into it. I don't need to live that, you know, super stressed out life of being an athlete anymore. I just need to live a really balanced life of what I, you know, just moving into that next phase. So just starting my day killed and just diving in the water. I find that that works really well for me. Yeah, I love that. I, I have to echo that. I live right at the beach at Cronulla and, and there's not a day that goes by that I don't go and dive in the surf. Rain, hail or shine, by the way. Winter <laughs> and summer. I love the cold water. It's good for you. It makes you feel alive and it has so many medicinal health benefits as well. That's a whole lot of science behind that, but that's a completely different podcast. Yeah, Excellent. no, it is good. It is good. Living by the water was, was something that I always wanted to do. And while I, when I first moved to Sydney, I was living in Potts Point, like in the city, and I was trying to train at the same time and I was constantly stressed because just being in the city is always mm. go, go, go. And I just didn't like it. And then I moved out too. to, yeah, and I'm out in, um, I'm out near Clavelli and I'm right across the road from the beach. And it was the best thing that I ever did because it's just, I think that the power of diving into the water and just washing off the day or starting the day fresh, I think it is such an amazing tool to use and it isn't used enough. People need to go just like reset down there it's so good beautifully said well molly if people want to connect with you what's the fastest way for them to do that oh probably instagram i've got that so if everybody i'm on what am i on i'm on instagram so my handle for that is at x molly x ray i'm on linkedin as well probably don't try and add me on facebook if i don't know you i won't accept it but yeah (laughs) instagram or linkedin is generally the best way to um is to connect with me and, you know, I'm always happy to talk to people about transition. I'm always happy to talk to people about training as well. I've got a lot of young girls that connect with me on Instagram and talk to me about rugby and training and, and you know, how that they can how they can make the most out of this training as well. All right, Molly. Well, thank you so much for coming on the Go All In podcast. We really appreciate you sharing your story and spending some time with us today. I'll make sure all of those links are included in the show notes and we look forward to speaking with you again soon. It's bye for now. No worries. Thanks for having me. All I want is to be with somebody. Take my pain away. I hear music playing so loudly.